Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to a very special episode of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1. You can hear me on Fox Sports Radio. Uh, you will be able to read me someplace soon. We're going to have an announcement on that. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. Uh, and it is my great pleasure to invite into the show today a Hall of Famer. I say that and I wait for that smile to come up on his face because I know what that must mean to him. Uh, Spencer Haywood, NBA Hall of Famer. Uh, champion and quite a fascinating story, which you can find in the 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 new book, the Spencer Haywood Rule: Battles Basketball and the Making of an American Iconoclast, written not by one but two writers. Which I have to tell you, Spencer. First of all, welcome. It's great to see you. It's good to see you in in good health. How are you at this moment? I'm doing great. This is just. Um... The NBA community has been open with open arms. Adam Silver has been really open. Chris Paul from the PA, from the Players Union, Michelle Roberts. Uh, gosh, I mean, and all of you guys from, you know, the broadcast industry and television industry. It's just been so awesome hmm. to open, you know, open open up this book and take a look at it and read through some of the, the journeys that I've been through and how I changed the game of yep. basketball. Thus the name of the Spencer Haywood rule because right. we have all of these uh, names for my ruling. Early entry, hardship, <laughs> uh, one and done. It's just one name. It's the Spencer Haywood rule. <laughs> and uh, one of the great guys who helped get this book deal was the former commissioner David Stern who was going to write the forward and you know he moved on before that into the heavens hmm. but gosh and I got Mark Spears from ESPN undefeated and Gary Washburn uh, from the Boston Globe you know we play I play with the Knicks so that's kind of hard to say Boston <laughs> <laughs> and I got on my Laker go and I got on my Laker shirt here so Boston. Yeah. So, for those who may not know, 1970, 
uh, a, a case involving Spencer went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was essentially Spencer fought for the right to play in the NBA before his his. Let me make sure I have this right before the four years of college eligibility were up. That was the rule at the time, correct? And it sounds yep. weird to say that now. If you if you spend four years in college now, you're probably not getting drafted more often yeah, than not, not right? <laughs> so, so I gotta get all choked up just imagining what that was like. But 1970, you you yeah. took the case and you basically fought for the right to go from the ABA signed by the Seattle Supersonics and then the league tried to to, to keep you out. And you and uh, Sam Schulman, the owner right. of the Sonics. Wow, took the yeah. case and ultimately fought for that. Now, most people don't know that history. They know the Larry Bird rule. They know a variety of of rules that are named after players. Yeah. How are you now with the fact that yeah, the Kobe's and the LeBron's and just about every possible star you can think of? Michael Jordan, Magic Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan leaving early. I mean, all of them. Uh, Charles left early. Everybody Charles. leaves early, right? Yeah. Yes. Go down the line. Yeah. They were all able to do that because of the battle that you took on. And in reading the book, there was a certain amount of resentment on your part that for the longest time, your battle and your fight was not acknowledged. In fact, you were you were castigated for having fought that. So I wonder where your mindset is now about about what you went through and the door that that opened that many people to this day have not recognized. Well, you know, it took, I say that it took 50 years and that's why we are here with the book today because you know, if you notice in my Hall of Fame speech, I made reference that, you know, I, I waited 27 years to get into the hall. Mm. <laughs> and I said at the closing uh, statement was that everything is happening to me and for me is not on my time, but it's on God's time. Mm. And so I have just embraced the idea that this is the right time. I mean, how do you... You, you just say all of this is happening right now when Black Lives Matters, you got the floor and, and the players are now being so conscious yep. and they are starting to read and they're starting to hear about this guy, Spencer Haywood. Uh, it's just so awesome. And, and again, it's, it's right on time. Hmm. It's right on time. So I don't have the, the anger or the resentment that I used to have because I thought, well, you know, I've helped players make billions of dollars. And not only that, but for their families, for their communities. Uh, you know, I, I hate using LeBron as an example, but he's the king, so I, got, I have to use him as an example. You know, for a guy like him, he left uh, four years early. Yep. So he's, I would say, he makes $50 million a year. So you're looking at a couple of million dollars. I mean, what, $200 million <laughs> over that period? And you have four years to tack on to your, your stats, 
to tack on to your life of your legs. I mean, it's just an incredible thing. So, you know, I just look at what I've done hmm. with players and with, with, with also with the ownership, because the ownership at my time when I, when I fought this case, East Club was basically averaging about two hundred and fifty million to three million to three hundred and fifty million, and now they're they're rounding out basically at three billion dollars or two billion dollars. So they had a chance to expand. Also, uh, the league had a chance to expand because before I came along, you didn't have a chance to expand because players was waiting four years in college, hmm. so you couldn't get players coming in early. You just couldn't get them. So that therefore you had to just you had a stagnant group of players coming in and you know, so all of a sudden this thing opened up. And when it when it opened up, all of a sudden you got revenue. You got, you know, everything just happening around that that one person. And you know, they always used to say in the cotton fields of Silver City, ain't nothing good coming out of Silver City, Mississippi. <laughs> Hmm. And lo and behold, here I am, this kid who was born into indentured slavery. Three years later, I am uh, chosen to save America in the 68 Olympics. I did that. Uh, the next step, I was chosen to uh, save the ABA from folding. I did that because I averaged 30 points and 20 rebounds for that season. Rookie of the year, leading scorer, leading rebounder. And then here I am thrust into the Supreme Court right up front. Now, I know Don King and everybody waved the flag. And hey, it only could happen in America. Really, it only could happen in America. Hmm. That's a good so, point. So I do want to get to where we are with the Spencer Haywood rule or it being named the Spencer Haywood rule before we're done. But I, you, you mentioned growing up in Silver City, Mississippi. When when was the last time, and and what the atmosphere was like then, um, and maybe even to a certain extent now? I don't really know how much things have changed. When was the last time that you were back in Mississippi? I was back in Silver City two years ago. Okay, my nephew is playing at Louisiana uh, University of Louisiana. He's the defensive player of the week, and yes. Uh, down there in the Southern Conference. And uh, I went down to see him. And then my sister, she still lives in Mississippi, but not in Silver City. She lives in Jackson. Okay. Uh, so I was there hanging out and just walking through the cotton fields and saying, wow, huh. I'm so blessed to get out of here. Because, you know, when I grew up, Rick, the one thing that I wanted to be was not a basketball player. I wanted to be the best cotton picker this 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 county and this state had ever witnessed. Hmm. Hmm. So I was a kid, I was like nine and ten years old, I was practicing, I was practicing. And little did I know, practicing picking cotton and practicing, but I was working, it was working 12 hours a day. But picking, you know what, because the cotton bow is a thorn. You gotta reach in and grab the cotton out and put it into a sack and then you got to drag the sack to the next spot, and then you got to, sometime when the sack gets full, you got to lift it up and put it on your shoulder, bring it back to the trailer and dump it. So my legs developed as a kid, hmm. my shoulders developed, 
and my hand and eye coordination because I didn't want to get stuck by the thorn. And, uh, and so all of these development was going on. And then I got good coordination because I was picking from both rows. And so then when I pick, when I picked up a basketball and I always played basketball, but it was like, Oh, okay. This is pretty easy stuff here. You know? So you had like, you were big for a kid and yeah. you obviously had a pretty good wingspan. How much yeah. did that allow you to be the cotton picker that you were to like pick from two rows at the same time? I was I was great at it. Huh. I was great at it. But also because of my competitive spirit, I wanted to beat my brothers. I was like really into this thing. And most people are like, that's crazy. How could you be so brainwashed to be into this? And I was, because that to me was my first sport, that in mm-hmm. golf, because I catted over at the golf course. So that was my first, you know, sports that yeah. I, I got acquainted with, which was picking cotton. And so when, you know, when I got to a gym where they said, well, you know, we're going to practice for two hours, I was like, oh my God, two hours? <laughs> and I was used to working in the field for 12 hours yeah. and doing real work. <laughs> Yeah. And so they put me in a gym and like, you know, practice for two hours and I I'm not even gonna ask you about load management then. I'm not gonna ask you about I did have load management. <laughs> but I do wanna ask you because it is such a prevalent thing in the book and obviously from your experience, not just growing up, but subsequently, um, your trust of white people. Like what how do you feel about white people now? Like what, what, how have you, how is your perspective? If it's evolved, how has it evolved? It, it didn't evolve in the sense that I didn't have mistrust in white people because, you know, when we didn't have food in Silver City, there was a lot of time we didn't have food or whatever. And our white neighbors who were living, you know, like a mile away would come down and, and say, Eunice, uh, that's my mother's name. Hmm. We don't, I know you might need some of this food, you know, that I have, and we want to share it with you. Hmm. So they shared it with our family, but my mother would like, now wait a minute, I'm going to take this food, but when my potato patch is ready, you know, potato patches when you plant potatoes, yeah. uh, I'm going to make you a sweet potato pie that's going to be out of this world. Hmm. So, you know, <laughs> I never experienced it like, that hate thing because we were like serious Christian family. We believed that, you know, the Lord would deliver us and that we had a lot of love in that house, you know, like nine children in there and we just loved each other. And, you know, we didn't look at things from a racial standpoint. We looked at someone who had the advantage over us, but they wasn't like, you know, like, it was the clan and everything else, but it wasn't like bad because we didn't view it as such. So right. I never had that problem. So I look at like what happened with uh, Sam Schumann, which is a white man, but he's a Jewish man. He came to me and said, Spencer, we're going to the Supreme Court. It's going to cost me an arm and a leg. In fact, it cost him $1.7 million in that period in 1970 and 71 to go there. Wow. So how can I look at one side and say, oh, man, this is great guy and this is great stuff. But yet I hold that resentment 
back, and I don't. And yeah. I, I mean, you know, I had to go through a lot of stuff to get to this place that I am now, and uh, it's a good place. It's yeah. a real place, yeah. So you, in the book, it talks about how leaving Seattle, like there was a lot of times where you felt betrayed uh, yeah. throughout, right? Yeah. But leaving Seattle, at least the way the book presents it, was was really tough on you. That that was when you were traded to New York. There was something that you really felt betrayed. Why did why did that of all the things that happened? Because we could go to Detroit. We could go yeah. like we could go to a lot of places where you felt like you were abandoned or yeah. that you were sold a bill of goods. Why why did Seattle cut so deep? Seattle cut real deep because my family, my brothers and my sisters, not my mother, she stayed down in Mississippi, but they had moved to Seattle. I had a family around me. I had love and care. And when I was going through the Supreme Court case, the people of Seattle, white and black, but mostly white, they covered me like with this love, you know, like I didn't, I didn't fear anything. And when I played basketball, I played it with, like, life and death. When I would go home at night uh, after the game, I would just be exhausted totally. I couldn't move. And so I had put so much into Seattle. And also during that court case, you know, I cried a lot. I hurt a lot. And, the you know, the restaurants, when I would go into them, they would just grab me and hug me and just love me up. Hmm. So I I was like, like a child being put out of your own home. Hmm. So that's what, where the pain came yeah. from. And uh, it was it's still painful to come sometime to talk about it because that's where I was. Yeah. And when I got to, see, when I got to New York, I mean, I, my game suffered, but I, I did fall in love with Iman, the model. Right. And we started our family, and, and I had a, a, a great experience there. But uh, Seattle was like, a, that was a painful journey, you know? Understandable. I, got, I didn't know anybody. I didn't, you know. Yeah. And these guys were older players, and so they didn't, you know. You know, how do you, what are you doing coming here going to save the Knicks? Who are you? You know. So the, champion, I, the championship Knicks are coming off of championships right. and getting older, which puts put you in a tough spot there. And then I was replacing Willis Reed. Dave DeBusher and uh, Jerry Lucas. So I couldn't mm. replace three guys. Yeah, yeah. It's a big, big task, a big okay. ask. Uh, yes. For those who may not know, so you grew up in Mississippi. Your family, you're, you're, you moved uh, to Detroit and right. lived with a family there uh, in part because your older brother had gone there to play basketball, correct? Yes. Or had he moved there, there for high school. Before. Yeah, right. and he played high school bas- basketball, and he was playing at Bowling Green State University. Right, right. And so he wanted me to come up to Detroit to get to be with this great coach, Will Robinson, and we finally got with him as a coach. And, in fact, he was the first black coach to coach in NC 2A Division One, and he coached the great Doug Collins in college. Illinois State. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, 
is <laughs> all of us are connected. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And for anybody, please read the book because um, because your connection to a variety, Bill Russell in, in Seattle as the coach, uh, I mean, all along the way. What's that? John Linden, who was tutored and coached and, and, and brought to life by Naismith. Right. right. Who coached me in the Olympics and also was my first coach in Denver with the Denver Rockets. Right, right, right. Yeah, all these things are like, you know, yeah, and I, Hank Iber, Hank Iber, who was the coach of the Olympic team. Right, right, right. Uh, legendary oh. coach. No, no, no. I, I honestly, when I was reading it, I felt like Spencer Haywood's kind of like Forrest Gump. Like he's, he's hey. connected to all of these like momentous people and events. The thing that, that got me that when you were in Detroit, and this is after high school when you played at Detroit Mercy, and by the way, my, I think my daughter, my daughter is talking to them about trying to play basketball there. So um, I've, been, I've been looking at that. I've been looking at that school. Uh, you, there was a bar or there was a lounge that you would go to where you heard George Benson... Miles Davis, Wes Montgomery, Pharaoh Sanders, and I was like, I, I, it blew my mind. Just yeah. so, tell me, what was it like to see Miles Davis oh, perform so in a in a in a lounge? Yeah, but it was, it's the oldest oldest jazz club in the world. Okay. It's called Baker's Keyboard Lounge on Seven Mile and Livinois, and every, to this day, everyone still come through. Bakers. Okay. And Miles was in um, Detroit at that time because he was trying to shake a, a, some heroin addiction, I think it was. And so we, we used to go up because, you know, the school is like a mile away. So we would walk up that mile and, and they were like, you know, you're underage, but we're going to let you come in because you know you love these guys because I was a jazz cat. I yeah. was, I've always been a jazz man. And to see him... Uh, perform and just I mean his tone was a little a little shaky but he was there and he was playing and then later on I saw Wes Montgomery and I'm waiting you know he's playing the guitar and so he had a cigarette in the in the string so we're like watching and you're like hey man is that ash gonna fall you know and he finally hit the last note room and the ash fell, and we were like, oh, Wes. <laughs> you know, you got to be a jazz man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good stuff. That whole, that whole journey. Are there, are there any of the guys, like, who, uh, those are the guys that are mentioned in the book. Is there anybody else? Like, if you, if you think about one of the most memorable uh, performances or opportunities to hear or see somebody play that was just so unique because of that circumstance. Because you were in Detroit at a time where obviously the jazz was there, but Motown was kicking off. Like that was the place. I mean, there was a lot going on in Detroit at that time. So, you know, Melvin Franklin of the Temptations, the great Temptations, would come to all of our games, Smokey and all of the people would come to all of the U of D games, the University of Detroit Mercy mm -hmm. games. And they would say, hey, you wanna come by and listen to us 
at Motown and, and rehearse and everything. I'm like, oh, yes. Yeah. I want to. Please, please. So I, you go into the studio, you think like, wow, it's going to be this big place, you know? And it was right down Grand Boulevard. You go in there and, and you see Diana Ross walking through and you're like, what the? And man, they would like start playing and they would do their rehearsals and we just sitting there, me and my buddy Wiley Davis and Vernell DeSilva, we just sitting there like, oh man, we done died and went to heaven. And and just listening to them getting ready for songs, you know, I mean, it was just incredible. And then they had like a 20 or 25 piece orchestra packed in the basement. Seriously, because that's not a big place, right? I mean, that's like a little storefront type of place. And you had all of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, you know, all of the string sections, the section, and they're like, I was like, oh my God, because I came from Silver City, Mississippi. Sure. Remember, sure. There is no silver, and it ain't no city. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going from these old backwood boys playing with three strings, three, three strings guitars and stuff like that. So you're playing like this thrumming, do 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 do. They yeah. just playing that sound, yeah. and then would have the bus would come through because we lived on the highway 49W. Okay. 49W was the blues route, so. You know, oh, through Silver had, City? Yeah. And okay. Cafe, cafe, we had one cafe in the town. And so every all of the blues players would stop at this cafe and eat. Mm. And we would like go up and meet B.B. King and all of those great Howling Wolf and all those people. I was like, oh, man. And then I get to Detroit, and I'm thinking, you know, doom, 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 doom. they get there. Oh, baby, I'm losing you. And, you know, like they got a whole nother level. And I'm like, oh, man, what? This is so beautiful. And then I'm in the studio with those people. It was just, it was just incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And I see Smokey sometime on the golf course and, and we see each other in, in, in a number of events, you know, and we just, we just sit back and laugh like, wow, you were this greenhorn kid from Mississippi sitting in our studio. We should have kicked you out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <sighs> What's it like to see, and you've, you've been uh, a proponent of bringing or revitalizing Detroit in a number of ways, uh, since, particularly since you retired. Um, what, what, what's it like to have seen it then at a heyday, yeah. see where it went, and see where it is now? Yeah. Uh, in this heyday... When I got there, everybody had two car garages or one car garage. You worked at Ford, General Motors, or Chrysler. And to come from making $2 a day from Mississippi, there was a train of people who came up and people from Europe who were coming in from Europe and so on. But to see people who were like just living a beautiful life, because we had Hamtramck, right? down the street, and that was all of the Polish people, mm-hmm. Rudy Tomjanovich and all those guys that we used to play with, but, and they were sitting right in Detroit, hmm. you know, Hamtramck is not outside of Detroit, right, right, right. Detroit. and so you had all of these people, and we just had all this culture going on, you know, and, you know, you could just feel, and people were living really well, because you were making 18 and $20 an hour back then. And you had a union 
that protected you had, you know, uh, health care and all the other stuff. So to see all of that, and then in 67, we burned the place down because of police injustice. Right. And it started with the riot on 12th Street, and then all of a sudden I came back there. The reason I was recruited back to the University of Detroit after my Olympic gold medal uh, stint in, 68, in the 68 Olympics through Governor Romney, not this Governor Romney, but his dad, and Mayor Kavanaugh, we wanted to rebuild the city of Detroit. And at that time, the Tigers were jumping. The Detroit Tigers mm -hmm. were, they had won the, the world champion. And so we were there. And then to go away for all of those years playing professional basketball. And, and then when Iman and I divorced, I came back home and I looked at my city and I was like, oh my God, what happened? Hmm. And so I, I went and met with Mayor Coleman Young at the time, and I said, well, I want to take some of my retirement funds and my retirement money because I got everything from Detroit, so I want to put something back in him. You're taking your retirement? Are you crazy? And I, I invested hmm. my money into Detroit, and the project is still there, Circle Drive is... Uh, a $19 million project. I didn't put up no $19 million now, but I have a nice piece. Yeah. I, I saw that growth. And then uh, the owner, the owner of the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, my mind slipped. Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert came into town with Quicken Loans. Yep. And they just bought up all of the downtown area. They are developing all of that. It's like a new day. It's like you come to Detroit now. It's like, whoa. Yeah. It's, I mean, downtown, they've taken up the streets and 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 just got cafes all up and down. Woodward, yep. Just like I was when I was a kid. Yeah. So all of that stuff and see that revitalization. The Pistons moved from the palace. They built themselves a, a, a stadium downtown. The Lions are no longer over on... Um, Michigan Avenue, they they are downtown. Right. You see those beautiful stadiums and see the restaurant industry, the waterfront is being developed. I mean, Detroit is a place you want to. It's really starting be. to come back for sure. I was there last, yeah. not this past season, but the season before, and I did a piece on uh, met with Blake Blake Griffin there. And I've known Derek Rose for a while, and so I, I caught it with them. And yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that you didn't yeah. have to hike it out to the suburbs in order to go to a game, or like the downtown certainly is is uh, is coming back. Yeah. Um, I'm proud of that city. It's just and Dan Gilbert, man, that yeah. guy. I know he's in Cleveland, yep. with the team, but he and uh, but he's a Detroit guy. He's, He's a, a Michigan guy. If he if he could own the Pistons, he would trade that. He would trade franchises in a heartbeat, in for a heartbeat. sure. Yeah. <laughs> so all of those guys in there. Magic is uh, Magic Johnson is putting some of the money back into it. Yeah. Dave, these are former players that yeah. are doing it. Jalen Rose have the Jalen Rose Academy there. Yep. I mean, you know, you got Vinny Johnson who's a, a billionaire now because he's in the auto industry, and hmm. I mean you. Got Bill Lambeard, who had, his father had Piston, Piston Packaging, which is a packaging company for the auto industry. So we have a lot of players who did really well yeah. in Detroit. So. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Who, who among the players, because when you first came in, you weren't embraced as a trailblazer and a guy who created opportunity. You were looked at as a guy who had created competition for the guys who were in the league. And they resented you for, for for that. Are there guys that you were crossways or sideways with then? Who are the guys that you've either like bridged the gap, have a different relationship with now? And is there anybody out there that you still haven't, you know, you're still at odds and, and you wish you weren't, but, but you are? I don't have any odds now because... <clears throat> When I, when I did my recovery stint 30 years ago, I started doing, making amends and talking to people. Hmm. And as part of my psychologist was saying, you know, you gotta go in, you gotta talk to people, you gotta like make these, you gotta feel what, and let it all out of your stomach and all out of, because that's why I also, I went back to Mississippi, played golf and hung out with the old farmers and stuff like that. So it was all part of my interesting, you know, interesting stuff together. And now, uh, because let me just tell you a little bit about what the union was about at that time. Because the union was told by the owners that, you know, if this guy win this case, you old heads, all of the old little basketball players or the players who had been in the league, you're going to become obsolete. They're going to push you right out. These yeah. young LeBron James type players are going to come. The Bob McAdoo's, <laughs> Spencer Haywood, Adrian Dantley, all these people are going to come and they're going to push you out and you're going to be gone. So they had to fight. Hmm. And and Kareem, he did a, um, a great thing for me when we played Milwaukee after the case. He came out and wouldn't stay downstairs because players would stay downstairs and let leave me up on the floor. What do you mean? Like Well, during the case... When the case was going on, I, they would have an injunction for me waiting. So, I, I mean, when they would have a 10-day injunction, I got an injunction against the NBA to play. So I played for 10 days, and they were like, ladies and gentlemen, we got this illegal player on the floor, and these next 10 games are playing under, an, under protest. They would announce this? Yes. In the, in the arena? To the, to the, the fans? Arena. In the arena with the fans. And so then we would go on and then I would get an injunction to play again. And they were like, uh, they would serve me with another injunction and say, we was in Cincinnati. We playing against the great big O and everybody, Jerry Lucas, I think it was. And Cincinnati I mean, Gardens. Huh? Cincinnati Gardens. Cincinnati Garden. It was, uh, no, Jack Twyman, yep. John Trestband, Wayne Embry, all of those guys. Yep. And I'm thinking, you know, we're going to like ball tonight, man. I'm playing against my hero, Oscar Robinson, the big O. <laughs> and they said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a league player on the floor, number 24. And he, we have an injunction right here. He must be escorted out of this arena 
and off the grounds in which this arena sat on. So they put me out into the snow. And I'm sitting out there in the snow. I'm freezing like, oh, man, I'm going to die. They, so not, he, not to the locker room. They didn't let you go to the locker room. They put you out of the building. Out of the building because it was a battle. And so sometimes when I, I look at, you know, what, sometimes I look at what's going on today and I say, man, the security and police, they came out near me and they said, we are breaking the law. Get in the car and warm up. You're huh. not going to die out here. Huh. Wow. So then I warmed That's... up and got back on the bus and go yeah. home. But it went on just like that. So it was just, it was an incredible time. Would you, looking back now, everything that you went through mm-hmm. and how long, and even now to say that you haven't really been recognized for what you went through. Yeah. If you had it to do all over again, would you still want to be that guy that, that, that fought the fight? Yeah. Because, really? you know, I got a chance to, to go to the Supreme Court hmm. for a battle, and I knew that all of these people were coming. They wanted to come into the league, but they couldn't come. Yet, Roger Brown, uh, Connie Hawkins, all of these pl- great players, a guy from Detroit named Curtis Jones, who was not an academic genius, but he was a savant on the floor. Hmm. I mean, he went away to college couldn't make it in college because they, you know, like he went to a party and they dropped some, some LSD on him, just screwed him up tremendously mm-hmm. bad. So that's all of those players and all of these players that have came into the league. I have ushered in into the African-American community about $22 billion worth of income mm-hmm. that they would not have seen. Mm-hmm. And they employ their brothers, sisters, like Chris Paul, for an example, is under the rule. He has his brother, his family, their foundation, and all of these people, Maverick Carter, along with LeBron's people, um, Rich, Rich, Rich Paul, uh, Rich Paul, all of these players, and, and they bring in their posse and their families. And then you go to Europe, you know, Dirk was one of the first, Yao yep. Ming, all of those guys. I mean, they have brought so much comfort and wealth to their country. So for me, I'm just thinking, man, Nothing good ever come out of the civil city. Huh? You <laughs> changed that. You changed that. City. I changed it. And so I'm just grat- I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I used to eat roadkill when I was a kid. Right. And now I'm sitting around eating vegan. <laughs> so, so, so I'm looking at, you know, <laughs> like it's this time in history. For it to be told, the story to be told. Yeah. And I think if it had been told earlier, Rick, I don't know if it would have the significance that it's having now. Yeah. Because, you know, like I was watching Richard Jefferson talk about the book that he had just read on the jump the other day. And he was like, I didn't know anything. And he came in under my roof. Right. And he's a, he's a, you know, he's sharp. So yep. Yep. it's like, wow. And Shaq and Charles doing a lot of, good stuff for me, you know, like they just talking me up and I haven't gotten it yet from Chris Paul, LeBron James and those guys, but I think it will be coming because I'm hoping that they will change the name so that people will know when they come into the league, you're coming in under a ruling. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Did uh, among the current players who, 
who has demonstrated the most interest in your in your story? Mm-hmm. I, I would think, and he knows the story, but sometimes he don't give it up. Is Kevin Durant because we are we are Sonics, you know what I mean? Sure. So yeah, and I remember when I was, they was retiring my jersey before they left to go to Oklahoma, and Kevin Durant walked up to me and said. And we had a lot of players standing around because, you know, the judge of retirement. I went into the locker room. We were talking. He said, this is the godfather <laughs> of all of this stuff. And he oh. was a bad MF. And, you know, he went on and on. But when he see me, he seemed like he's like, you know, a little shy or something. Yeah. I don't know. And so huh. I appreciate him. Yeah. Uh, and LeBron James is like his people reached out to me to do uh, Shut Up and Dribble, you know, and so hmm. I think that it's coming. Yeah. But, you know, the players, they're just learning about this. They sure. Know. Yep. What, yeah. um, w- what player reminds you of yourself as you watch them play, the guy that you look at and say, He's, that's, that's the, the current Spencer Haywood. Yeah, now let's go back in a little history so I can tell these people so I can so they can relate to it. Yeah. Okay. I was 19 at the Olympics. I set a record in the most points, the most rebounds, still on the records, a record in the, the highest field goal percentage, and I held a record until Durant broke it in scoring uh, recently. Uh, also, before that, I was averaging 30 and 20 for a season. 30 points, then, 20 rebounds. Yeah, in the playoffs with Denver, I went up to 36 and 21 for the hmm. first 12 games and the first time Denver ever went to a playoff. Hmm. So, And in college, I was the outstanding college player of the year behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I was averaging 33 and 22. At little old Detroit Mercy. Yeah, and at that time it was old, it was just University of Detroit. Right, played body. It was independent conference, and so in high school, I was twenty six and twenty six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when I see LeBron play, and if I hadn't, you know, like went through all of this stuff, I thought that would be my kind of guy because I was big and you know I had some some juice on me because of. The, Picking cotton back. Sure, 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 and, sure. And I, I kind of played a kind of a outside inside game, but I played a, a kind of a bully game too. Hmm. So I, I looked okay. at him and I said, "Well, you know, you know, if I had stayed clean and sober and everything else, and not had any, not fall in love when I went to New York, yeah. My, I mean, that could have been me. Yeah. So look at him and say, hey." So you know. you've you've mentioned the recovery a number of times, and mm-hmm. I, I'm 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 guessing that um, that you weren't doing cocaine in Silver City, Mississippi. No. What what was where was it? What was the first time? Because I if, if I understand your story correctly, um, you know you've recovered from everything. You're sober. You're clean and sober. Right. But that cocaine was the thing that like accelerated things or really took you took you down right 
Where where were you first introduced to it? What 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 was the well, situation? I was introduced to it in the fashion industry and everything in New York, but I was not a user in okay. that sense. Okay, I I tapped and I just moved on. Right. But when I got to L.A. and I was just brought in with the Lakers, the grand opportunity. We had Magic Johnson's rookie year, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jamal Wilkes, Norm Nixon, Michael Cooper. And we and we have a squad. Hmm. Yet I go over to this, you know, people that I've been seeing on television. I'm sitting at this party, at this at this mansion in Beverly Hills, and and everybody is like running in and out of this room, and I'm trying to figure out. I know this guy. Oh my God, he's a movie star. I know these people, and so I'm like just excited, and then I wander into this to this room, and it's a beautiful room, you know, and and they are like. Smoking, you know, they're smoking and oh, they're okay. saying they're smoking. So they're know, freebasing. Freebasing. Yeah. So I'm thinking, yeah. And they says, hey, you know what? If you do this, you don't have no drip in your nose. You don't have nothing. It's like organic in a way because you wash all of the impurities out and you're just smoking the purity. I mean, I know it was a lie. <laughs> I'm tripping. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I go in here and I hit the shit. Yeah. And I'm smoking and I'm thinking, wow, what kind of madness is this? And I didn't just hit it. I stayed there until like four in the morning. Huh. I couldn't put it down. Huh. And and that was my journey. Yeah. Because I came in there doing, let me give you an example of how I fell. I came in there doing from New Orleans. I was doing 20, 25 points, I think, and 12 rebounds. Playing with the great uh, Pistol Pete Maravich, correct? Yeah, Pistol yep. Pete, Gail Goodrich, Elgin Baylor was my coach. Uh, I'm in LA with Magic Johnson. All you had to do is do this, and he hit you with the ball. Oh, you know, like, but. <laughs> you better have your awful. hands up, because he might throw it in Put it right <laughs> in hit you in the head. Oh, oh, yeah. okay, I'll just take the layup. <laughs> and, uh, so I watched my game go down all the way down to like uh, seven and five. Yeah. I never, I have never yeah. averaged seven and five since I was in elementary school, yeah. or even before then. Yeah. And I was like 15 pounds lighter and I was a shell of myself. Hmm. And at the end of the season, uh, you know, I, I was at a practice and I had been up all night. I sit, I'm sitting in a practice. We're in the championship, like right now. This is the game. Yeah. Game five. I fall asleep in practice hmm. because I had quaaludes trying to keep my heart from jumping out of my chest. So I fell asleep, and the team says, well, you know, you got to take a break. And we had three games to go, two games to go. And so I did. And uh, after the season, uh, the players on the team was like, if he don't get help right some kind of way, hmm. he's going to die. Hmm. So Dr. Buss, Jerry West, uh, Pat Riley, and, and Paul Westhead said, well, you know, let's send him to Italy. And I was like, I don't want to go to no Italy. I'm, I'm, I'm well. Look at me. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. And, and so because I wanted to go to Dallas in the new expansion team 
Yeah. So I, they send me over to Italy, and I get off the you know the plane, Alitalia. I, I jump into Venice, and I'm looking around like, where's the city? Hmm. It's out there in the ocean. <laughs> So I get on this thing and I go over there and I'm so mad and so angry and like just hostile. And then the Italians were like so grateful to have me there because they know from, they knew from the Olympics. Sure. And they knew with Iman, it was like just a big celebration. So they just started loving me up like they did in Seattle. Huh. And loved all of the anger out of me. I, I got clean and straight and I played great basketball over there. And... Uh, so it was it was that journey. Yeah. And then I had a couple of slip ups in between there after that, you know. Yeah. But then I started really practicing, you know, going to, to meetings, twelve step meetings, and I went to a recovery center out in your area. I think you're in the San Francisco area. Yep. Uh, and um, then I started making that journey all the way through. Like, how did I end up here? I end up going to Egypt, going throughout Africa. Yeah, trying to figure out why I was, how did I end up doing this? And yeah. then speaking with my psychologist and my psychiatrist, we started talking about how was how many people in your family have this disease? And I'm like, they didn't have a disease, but they died of alcoholism. <laughs> right. I'm talking about right. You know, right. So, they drank themselves to death, but nobody's ever had the disease. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's wow. when I really started to take it serious. Wow. Detroit helped me in my whole recovery because I got that recovery community in Detroit yeah. that supported me. And I now, then I married a, a wonderful wife that I've been married to for 30 years. I have four daughters that have graduated college. I have two doctors in my family. I have one that's a psychologist. <laughs> my 27-year-old is a no, 29-year-old psychologist. Oh. <laughs> and then I have a professor at Lincoln University Courtney and Shakira is a doctor. Isis worked at Bleacher Report and also she was over at Slam Magazine for years. Okay. And uh, Zuleika from Iman, that marriage, uh, she's, uh, she don't like me to say anything. She's an executive at the Koch Brothers. <laughs> is she really? Oh, yeah, because wow. they live in Kansas and they're raising their daughter. So, uh, and I keep telling them, man, they do good things too. Come yeah. on. So yeah. as we as we record this, you're wearing a Lakers a, a Lakers shirt. Yeah. Um, it took you a while because they didn't give you a championship ring initially, and they were given yeah. a lot of. I mean, you were really ostracized as a result yeah. of what happened at that time. Uh, it, clearly, if you're wearing the Lakers jersey, you've come to terms with that, and you reconciled. Yeah. How did you end up reconciling? And and because and, my first thing was, you know, the the as we record this, the finals are going on, and I'm thinking, okay, well he's he's got to be after reading the book, he's he's got to be rooting for the Heat. He's not rooting for the for the Lakers. And I see you wearing the purple and gold, so now I wonder, like, where where where's your head at as far as the franchise? With the Lakers, you know, once you in the purple and gold, you know, that's your brand, and. Uh, also, uh, Jenny Buss has spoke with me and opened up a, a lot of good avenues. Hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar brought me back and did the ring ceremony. And um, 
and Magic Johnson has been, you know, with me now. His brother used to work for my foundation in hmm. Detroit. Hmm. And Larry and I communicate a lot, so I'm there with them. Jim Jones and I speak a lot. Norm Nixon and I hang out and hmm. talk a lot about my crazy days. Michael Cooper and Jamal Wilkes is always around. We, they just they just beat me down so bad. You. <laughs> We would have had 10 championships. <laughs> what the hell happened to you? I mean, yeah. saying no, news to me on my head and stuff. And I'm like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, so, so it's just, you know, when you, when you let go mm. and let God take over and let thy will be done and not your own, you seem to like let a lot out and let a lot of good, you know, you open your arms for the joy. And a lot go out, but so much more come in. Yeah. And and then when the commissioner, you know, started working with me and helping me to get this book and get the contract, he and Charlie Rosenswag from the NBA office, mm -hmm. Adam Silver, is taking pictures with the book nowadays. Like, hey, this is our guy. So it's just it's just a blitz. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't I can't explain it. And then. You know, my favorite basketball player is playing on that team, LeBron. So, and you know, I'm always getting a little controversial because I don't know who is the goat, and everybody keep asking me, "Who is the goat, man? You you should know you played against everybody you're doing this." And I said, "Well, yeah, you know, the big guy is the goat, but I, you can't you can't market him, Serene. right? Right, right. <laughs> so it's got to be between Jordan and LeBron, and you know, he's playing right now." <laughs> I mean, Michael, can I tell you a quick Michael Jordan? Sure, absolutely. Michael called me up. And we're in New York. We're just you know, right. hanging out. By the way, just as a preface, as a preface, Spencer Haywood was Michael Jordan with Nike before Michael Jordan. First Nike ad ever was with Spencer Haywood, not yeah. Michael Jordan. Okay, continue with your Michael Jordan story. I wanted to make sure people understood the preface. And that's what the story is about. Okay. So. I, you know, like this guy called me and says, Michael said he wants you to meet him down here in lower Manhattan at the restaurant. They're nope. going to talk about, you know, how important you were to him and everything. And how when was this? Now, when was this? Huh? When did this happen? When, when did you? This was like two years ago, three years oh, ago. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So I, I'm going, okay, let me go down and see what Mike is talking about. Because Mike has came to my room doing the Legends events and he came up and hung out with me and talk about stuff I and mean, we just talking not about basketball but just life and yeah. stuff like that so i get to the restaurant and you know you got all these executives because he was doing the negotiation with the players union at the time so they got all the nba executives in there so i'm like oh man so here's mike and he's like let me tell you who would have been richer than me oh Mike, don't go here. <laughs> He's like, no, this guy had a, a Nike contract before I did. He had the money bag. But he decided to trust his agent. Or his, and, you know, what happened was that they came in and said, well, the agent was like, I can't get my money out of this deal because yep. you have ownership. Because they were giving you stock. They was giving the me stock. Yeah. I don't want that money. So they had my power of attorney. They turned my stock back in and took the cash. 
pennies on the dollar. Yeah, so Michael was eating me up. So that that's night. why he wanted to meet with you two, three years no, ago? He was, talking, he was talking to all of them about what I did for him and how he got to be this billionaire, zillionaire. Yeah. And yet he had to kind of, you know, Mike is always going. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's always got the dagger. He's always got the he needle. A little taste. That's his love way. Yeah. That's his way of, like, loving. It's, that's his love language. <laughs> that's his love language. So, I mean, I accepted it, and I went home, and I was like, Damn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so that was cool. That's a good deal. So, and you are in the Nike club. What does the Nike club get you? I get all of the shoes I want right okay. now. Okay. So you get all I, the gear you want. Yeah. Well, I get everything I want. And, and, um, Phil Knight and I go back because not only then, but in 76, I think it was, we had a big event. In, in uh, Reno, outside of Reno and Lake Tahoe. And we had a problem getting, you know, women to be introduced to the brand. So he was like, well, you know, we need somebody to help us with this, you know? And so I was like, well, she's got a shoot. She's got a Calvin Klein shoot. And so I'm like, Iman, you gotta, you gotta like go with me to this event. And she was like, I got my shoe. And so we called Calvin, and he was like, damn, you're messing up the shoe. And so we fly up there, and we hang out with him and all of the other Nike members. And so, and that's when all of the wives and everybody else said, well, the shoe's here. I'm coming, too. And so all of the women came. <laughs> and so that's the women brand, so to speak. Uh -huh. And so. Phil has much love for me. He shows much respect. And I spend a lot of time now with Lynn Merritt. Okay. He's the head of basketball operations. Yep. We're doing a program for prostate cancer, uh, the Prostate Cancer Foundation of America. We're looking to do something really big. And it's going to be released with the NBA soon. Good. And okay. Thing, because I'm a survivor huh. of cancer as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Survivor in many, many ways. Yeah. So before I want to wrap up on this, what is the likelihood that it will be known as the Spencer Haywood rule? Because obviously Adam Silver knows about the book. He knows about your situation. Uh, you've, you've gotten, you've, you've been uh, re-embraced by the league. Yes. Is... Is this something that you anticipate that is going to happen? And if so, when? I don't know when, but I know it's going to happen. It is also incumbent upon the players, the union, the players union. Chris Paul is, is the head of the union, the executive board, Andre Iguodala, uh, Steph Curry, Jalen Brown. All of these players are under this ruling. So yeah. it's incumbent upon them to do it. And Michelle Roberts, she said we were going to do it sometime. Yeah. And so between the two of them, it will come. You yeah. know? And this is happening right now in front of me. It's like real-time stuff going on. Good and deal. so I didn't learn about this. They said, oh, of course it's the Spencer Haywood rule. And, you know, the, the, we talk about the NBA, but the NFL is using the same rule as well. Hmm. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Good. Well, one one sport at a time. Well, one sport. <laughs> I'm sticking with my NBA. There you go. All right. 
Spencer, it's Hola. been thank you so much for the time. Uh, I really enjoyed the uh, enjoyed the book and being reminded. I knew pieces of your story, but uh, didn't know uh, didn't know all of it. And uh, congratulations on your recovery and your sobriety. Uh, and it's so good to hear you have come full circle. Um, and I almost get a sense that while there might have been a bitterness at one point about what you experienced, <laughs> there is a uh, there is an acceptance and uh, and and a gratitude that acceptance. you you got it. What you talking about, boy? You talking that recovery talk? <laughs> <laughs> an acceptance and gratitude. Yeah, such a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, thank you for thank you for joining me, and uh, I look forward to the announcement of the Spencer Haywood rule being part of the next collective bargaining agreement. But thank you for joining me. Thank you. Much love. That does it for this episode of Buker and Friends. Uh, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And in our next episode, uh, we'll discuss the poor ratings for the NBA Finals, as well as What would have to happen for LeBron James to move into the top five all-time Lakers? Could he do it? And what would he have to do to do it? And who would be the one who would fall out? We'll also talk about the league's interest or intention now in starting the next season on Christmas Day and the possibility of that actually happening. All that in the next podcast. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.